and uh, grab your Bibles. 1 Kings 2, we're going to pick up right where we left off this morning. And uh, today we will conclude our study of the life of David. I looked at the uh, numbers again. I think this is number 68 uh, sermon, something like that. Going from 1 Samuel 16 all the way to 1 Kings 2. The longest biography of, uh, in the Bible is the life of King David, and rightly so. A lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of good, a lot of bad. Easy texts, hard texts, familiar texts, less familiar texts. We come here to the death of King David. 1 Kings 2, what we want to do is read the first 12 verses. So if you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's word. And we will uh, pick up where we left off this morning. The writer of 1 Kings 2 writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do wherever you turn. The Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Also, you know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me how he dealt with the two commanders of armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let this gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on, on the day when I went to uh, Mahanaim. And when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. You shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat at the throne of, on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as we prayed this morning, as we pray every time we gather, that your spirit would move, that we would receive and believe your word with ready hearts um, and being transformed by your gospel. Would you be so kind to help us this evening? Lord, what a story we have here of David. It comes to the end by which he passes away and sees you face to face. Lord, let us learn from his example, but ultimately see Christ in the end. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of so we pray. Amen. Be seated. I uh, gave some bad advice this morning. I'd like to give you what I think is solid, sound advice this evening. Uh, and, it, and it was inspired by the fact that I discovered that there is a a, uh, a an Instagram account dedicated to Looney Tunes, and I grew up well in Looney Tunes, I, I, so that means my childhood was was perfect. Um, Looney Tunes. My my grandfather, mom's dad, loved it when we would come over on weekends because Saturday morning cartoons, and he would laugh at the same places we would laugh. Love love Looney Tunes, and of course 
the greatest of all the cartoon characters ever, particularly among the Looney Tunes, is without a doubt Foghorn Leghorn. You've heard me say that before, right? Foghorn, I say, I say Foghorn Leghorn is the best character in the history. Look at there, he is paying attention. There's proof right there, all right? So, so let me give you a few words of wisdom from Foghorn Leghorn. Boy's got a mouth like a cannon, always shooting it off. Don't, I say, don't bother me, dog. Can't you see I'm thinking? <laughs> for I say, for, I say, fortunately, I always carry a spare set of feathers. I've, I, you've seen that, right? Where, where I know he does something, all his feathers go. He said, good thing I carry around an extra set of feathers. That's just hilarious to me. He's about as sharp as a bowling ball. Kids don't quit Kids don't quit talking so much, he'll get his tongue sunburned. <laughs> that's, that's funny right there. You can use that, right? <laughs> I got a daughter like that. Nice boy, but, but he's got more nerve than a, burn, uh, than a bum tooth. Oh, that woman got a mouth like an outboard motor. <laughs> We're going to move on from there. Pay attention to me, boy. I'm not just talking to hear my head roar. <laughs> So good. Oh, man, I could use that as a parent. Pay attention, boy. I'm cutting, but you ain't bleeding. <laughs> that's, that's snort worthy. Smart boy got a mind like a steel trap full of mice. That boy is as strong as an ox and just about as smart. That dog's as subtle as a hand grenade in a barrel of oatmeal. That dog's like taxes. He just don't know when to stop. <laughs> Last one. That I say, that boy's just like a tattoo. Gets under your skin. <laughs> I just love that. that is the classic foghorn leghorn. I just absolutely love that. That'll preach right there. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. So here we have uh, David on his deathbed. Uh, giving final words of wisdom, although it may not be as colorful as uh, the majestic foghorn leghorn. It is really, in many ways, the, the same thing that he's, he is wanting to leave his son. And not just, again, what he said this morning, not just any son, but a son who will pick up where he's left off, who will occupy his throne that he has fought for, protected, and, and led so, so faithfully. So we looked at the first of three points that, that he makes. And the first was strength, be strong. The second we want to see here in verses three and four, and that is obedience, strength and obedience. A couple key words here in verse three, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses. Notice there's the word keep uh, is used twice, keep and keeping, and then there is the verb to, to walk. It carries the idea that, that the laws of God are not merely to be received intellectually, but rather with the transforming of the mind, to use Pauline language, comes the transformation of our actions. Uh, one of the things my brother and I did that drove my parents crazy is that when we had our family talks, which always culminated in a whooping, um, uh, you know, they would say, um, you know you're not supposed to do X. And we would say, I know. And then you're not supposed to do X. Well, I know. You shouldn't really do, I know. And they would get so sick and tired of my brother and I saying, I know, I know, I know. Eventually, one of them would say, well, if you know, why'd you do it? If you know you're not supposed to hit your sister, why'd you do it? 
If you know you're supposed to do your chores, why didn't you do it? If you know, right, whatever it is that we did, right? And there's, there's some real truth to that. Here he's saying that you, you, you keep and you walk in the ways of the Lord. Now, we need to note here, this was the expectation of the Jewish king. And, and so just as the ancients expected their kings to follow their pagan traditions, so it isn't too much to ask that the Jewish king would follow the traditions of Judaism, Right? And, and what happened was the opposite, is instead of being a light to the nations, which Solomon reaches as a climax with the Queen of Sheba coming to visit him, instead of being a light to the nations by which the, the people of the world can come and see that God has come down uh, there in the temple and you can meet God there. And so you have a type of Garden of Eden that extends its borders. Instead of being a light to the nations, the nations ended up being a light unto Israel. And, and, and so essentially, if you will, put a shade over that light of, of Israel. But the people of God, David is saying, should expect their leadership to be godly. More than that, um, leadership is a reflection of the organization that they lead. I don't know if you thought about this much, especially in a democracy. One of the things that's hard for us to grasp in a democracy is that we always get the leaders we deserve. And that's one of the things I found at the Capitol is that I have a sign whenever I do I do a booth. It'll say something like, do you believe politicians need Jesus? Right. And that's a good way to get people's attention. But one of the things people have a hard time doing is we, we, we bifurcate their Looney Tunes up there. Right. And that would come full circle. Their Looney Tunes up there. We're not so crazy down here. But actually, what you need to realize is that in democracy, you get exactly what it is that you deserve. If it looks chaotic at the top. More likely, it's because it's chaotic everywhere you go. And it is. Look at our homes, look at our families, look at our communities, our culture, and everything else. So though Solomon is exhorted to keep the commandments and to walk in the ways of the Lord, he, like his father, though initially successful in that, fails to finish strongly. In fact, that is essentially the story of what you're going to get in First and Second Kings. Uh, is, is the story of how some of the kings will follow the ways of the Lord and they are blessed, whereas most of the kings, particularly in the northern part of Israel, uh, do not do that. You'll notice that, that this, this, this request, this exhortation to uh, keep and walk in the ways of God brings with the promise in verse 4. The Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. If you, if, if, if you pay close attention to uh, the way of God, to walk before me in faithfulness, you will not lack a name on, on the throne. Well, it's easy to, to, to be confused about this. And so I think, I think there's two things we need to understand when it comes to the promises of God, as the Davidic covenant uh, plays a role in this. The promises of God are both unconditional, whereas some are conditional. So take, for example, uh, or not for example, but consider the uh, unconditional promises of God is one by which God makes a promise he will fulfill regardless of the situation on the ground. The Abrahamic covenant, for example, makes the people of Israel God's chosen people despite how wicked and broken they are. So if you go back to the Abrahamic story, which we've spent quite a bit of time on Wednesday nights in our Genesis study, you may remember that there's the part where Abraham falls asleep Right? He, he takes the carcasses, he splits them in half, and, 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 and while Abraham is asleep, like Adam before him falls asleep and, and gets the covenant of marriage, Abraham falls asleep and God walks through the severed carcasses, which is a way of saying, uh, let what happened to these animals happen to me if I break my end of the deal. Well, in that ceremony, God walks through it, not Abraham. He's asleep. 
which meant this is an unconditional promise that God himself would keep because Abraham will not and cannot keep it, nor will his descendants. It's an unconditional promise that the people of Israel are God's chosen elect people of God. The Davidic covenant is, in this sense, a unconditional promise that, uh, there, that Israel will not lack um, a son of David on the throne of Israel. That's an unconditional promise. However, there is a conditional part of that. And that is that God says, look, look, if, if your sons fall away and refuse to obey the law's commandments of God, there will be judgment upon them. And so what you get then throughout First and Second Kings and then First and Second Chronicles is that tension between the unconditional and the conditional. So this, is, this helps explain the Assyrian uh, 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 captivity and the Babylonian captivity. Because what you have is Israel, both the north and the south, Judah and Israel, they, they fall away so much that the conditional promise of God, that is, if you obey, you are blessed. If you disobey, you are judged, eventually culminates in uh, the triumph of the Assyrians in the north, the Babylonians in the south. At the same time, when you read First and Second Chronicles, it tells the same stories you get in Samuel and Kings. Not in the same order and not, not every little detail. But it gives you essentially the history of the monarchy in First and Second Chronicles. But what you're going to notice in First and Second Chronicles is that it lacks some of the juicier stuff. It'll say, yeah, they made a lot of mistakes. But, but the point of First and Second Chronicles, one of the last books written in the Old Testament, is to remind Israel, though we fell under the judgment of God due to the conditional aspect of the promise, God's unconditional promise to Israel still remains. So when the people of Israel gather back from the Babylonian captivity, they are reminded God really has kept his promises. Those two are really important for us to keep in balance because we confuse them all the time. There is an unconditional promise we have received from Christ in the gospel. And that is unconditional because we did not contribute to the reception of that promise. We come by faith alone. There is a conditional aspect of things, and that is that if you go to the way of, of the Lord, there is, in general, blessing that will follow. But if you disobey the Lord, there is judgment and cursing and, and consequences that will follow. Think about it. Um, uh, remember what it is what we said this morning about fatherlessness. If we follow the way of the Lord with a strong nuclear family where uh, the man is a man and the woman is a woman and the children are the children, what you're going to get out of that is blessing, good stuff. Like we know what a boy and girl are, you know, small things. Or think about that, that if gospel love has a higher success rate than, say, contempt, just in general, how much better our society be if we actually treated each other nicely? Or, or joy has a higher success rate than bitterness. It's amazing how we, we, we think that being bitter will make us happy. Yet what we've chosen to, to follow is the very thing that's making us miserable. Or, or faith has a higher success rate than victimhood. Maybe you don't like your lot in life. Maybe you feel like you're a victim of a lot of things. But you say, but God is on his throne. And everything will be okay in the end. Righteousness is better than criminality. Humility is greater than pride, right? We understand this. There is the conditional aspect of things that, that are true. Now, this balance between the unconditional and the conditional does help us ward off threats from like the prosperity heresy. Who will look at this text and say, see, God rewards those who are faithful and good boys and girls. And that's not what David is saying at all. He's reminding Solomon, God has made a promise to his people. Hold fast to that and follow after the God who has made us such unconditional promises of grace. 
What that looks like practically is we keep and walk in his ways. Now we need to, at this point, return to the setting of this exhortation. This is a dying father to his beloved son. And before he addresses politics, I think it's important that he addresses the boy's soul, don't you? Because you, 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 you can't deal with what follows. What do you do with Joab and, and all those other guys? You, you can't address those political things without getting this thing right. We have flipped that as a nation, haven't we? Even the church has prioritized the political over the theological. It's not what David does. David says, look, if you're going to take this role, you'd better be a strong man. And strong men are righteous men. And then he can deal with the more complicated issues. Let's look at that thirdly, finally, leadership. Strength, obedience, leadership. I apologize that they do not alliterate. Strength, obedience, leadership. Without a doubt, these verses, verses 5 to 9, is the most difficult of this, this entire chapter. Um, as someone pointed it out to me this morning, he, he said, you know, you said all that about strength, but you sort of forgot everything David said at the end. Like, yeah, we, we're going to get there. And this, this is the, the part that is quite complicated. Let me give you a summarization of what David says to Solomon. After I die, I want you to kill a few people for me. Will you do that? Right? Is that a fair assessment? It's not the complete assessment. It's a fair assessment. Right? I mean, if, 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 you're gonna, if, if, if you get someone before you buy a house to, you know, to check the house and everything, they're going to tell you all the bad things, aren't they? It's a fair assessment of the house. Not a full assessment. The roof's fine. But he didn't either write that down. He didn't tell you that it's going to catch on fire if you don't change things, right? You, know, you need to know that. So here he essentially says, Solly, after I'm gone, there's a couple of people I need you to execute for me. So what do we do with this? Strength, obedience, leadership. Some of these names will sound familiar to us. Actually, all of them should. Verses 5 to 6, he mentions Joab, the son of Zeruiah. Joab has been a major character in the story of David. As David mentions here, Joab is a murderer. Uh, he murdered both Abner and Amasa. We, we, I don't want to re-explore those stories. We spent some time on them uh, uh, in the past. Amasa more, more recent than, than Abner. And David notes that these murders were committed in times of peace. So there was no justification that it was the fog of war or anything like that, which ap the murder of Absalom, right? It's interesting. He doesn't mention Absalom because you could write that off as a warfare sort of thing. But Abner and Amasa are, are murdered in the time of peace. And remember, Joab was a very loyal figure, but he was very dangerous at the same time. Certainly after he was fired from leading David's army, he went on a rampage in search of a man to behead. You remember the story of the woman who in the city, Joab's there with the batting rams and, you know, off of his head. And she says, okay, give me a minute and chucks it over the wall. You know, the, you know, the story we, we share with our children before we go to bed each night. That story, that was Joab leading that. Joab had been kicked out of the army. He's like, well, I'll fix this. I, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to come sort of hunt people down to, to behead them. He was loyal and gifted, but he lacked really any moral judgment. Use your wisdom, he says in verse 6. He says, but he does not deserve to die in peace. Now, there is some irony here because here is David dying in peace. But he doesn't think Joab should. Shimei, in verses 8 to 9, is the son of Gera. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, you may not remember him, but we, we did look at him. He's the guy that when Absalom took over Jerusalem and David and his, and his merry men fled, uh, Shimei is the guy that hurled curses at David and his men, threw stones at them. 
And you remember it was Joab and the boys who said, you know, give me the order, boss, and I'll, 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 I'll kill him for you. And David said, no, 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 we're, we're not going to do that here. He accused David of being the murderer behind Saul's death, causing Saul's death. And he saw Absalom as God's judgment upon Saul or upon David for killing Saul. He was very loyal to, to Absalom. Now, he later apologized, but clearly this was an influential man. He has a bit of an army around him, we find out later, um, or previously, I guess, at this point. But David never did trust him, nor did he forget what Shimei had done to him in very vulnerable moments. So you see there in verse 9, just like with Joab, David does not believe that the man should die in peace. Now, these two requests of, ex- of David asking Solomon to execute these men are, are criticized, and, and to a certain extent, rightly so. Because in its context, David asked Solomon to be strong and then later demonstrates his own cowardice to, to, to carry this out himself. So you can see that there's a real problem here. On the one hand, he says, Solomon, I need you to be strong no matter what. And then he says, but be stronger than me because I failed to address these two issues. Now, to, to cut David some slack, you see there in verse 8, he says part of the reason he hasn't dealt with Shimei is because he made a promise he wouldn't do it. But, but there's still Joab right there. She's right-hand man in the army. Now, one of the reasons we're uncomfortable with this scene is because it reflects common ancient Near Eastern uh, traditions that we just, we don't practice today and we don't really think about much. But we also need to note, David doesn't just ask Solomon to execute people. Look, look at verse 7. Deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. You remember this story? Barzillai, the Gileadite? During that civil war, as David makes clear here, Barzillai provided food and supplies for David and his men. It really helped them to, to sort of survive that very dark time. And when David was returning in power, Barzillai came back and said, I'm so glad to see that you've, you've won. You know? And David says, well, why don't you just come to Jerusalem with me so I can honor you? And, and Barzillai's like, I, I, I don't have the physical strength to travel all the way to Jerusalem to pack up my bags and everything, but can I send my son? And David says, of course, you know, your son can come and we'll treat him like a prince and all that sort of stuff. So, so David is, he's saying, look, there are those who are treacherous, and you should deal with them appropriately. There are those who are loyal, and you should treat them appropriately. But ultimately, what we need to see in all this politics is that through all the muck, David is asking Solomon to lead, but not just lead in general. We talked about that leadership requires strength. David is most concerned that he would lead with wisdom. He has to be able to tell which ones are the ones can you not trust and will likely have to address as, as if you keep reading Kings, Solomon deals with them. And which one of the ones should you honor? Because what you're going to find after Solomon dies, his son takes over. What does Rehoboam do? He honors those who are dishonorable. He dishonors those who are honorable. He does the opposite of what David asks here. He doesn't lead with wisdom. No wonder then when you come into the story of Solomon, particularly starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, and go all the way through chapter 4, the number one theme theme that you will find is wisdom. So in in, in, uh, 
uh, or rather chapter 3, not, not, not ch chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 15, is the story where Solomon prays for wisdom. You remember he hears the voice and, and, and uh, he says, you know, give me wisdom. That's my one request to give me wisdom. And he's given to an abundance. To illustrate that in 1 Kings 3, verses 16 to 28, is the story where, where the two women come and they're fighting over who's, who's the baby's mother, right? And you remember what Solomon does? Chop them in half, right? I don't recommend you do that, right? But what's the point? Solomon wisely understands a mother would rather lose custody of her child than to lose the child. But the other one who, who has her own motivations, is her concern isn't the well-being of the child. It's something far devious, right? And Solomon wisely uh, 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 handles that. And that is all to illustrate the point Solomon leads with wisdom. Go to 1 Kings chapter 4, if you will, just, just to illustrate this point. 1 Kings 4, verses 20 and 21. So just one page over, likely. Judah and Israel, boy, we've got to move on. Uh, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms uh, from Euphrates to the land of Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So what you see then is the dream of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of them is finally realized at this point in the story of Solomon. God has kept his unconditional promises he made to Abraham and David. This is a real climax in the story of the Bible. Go down to verse 29 of chapter 4. Notice the key. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. So Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, Hermon, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Maal, and his fame was in all surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, of cedar that is in Lebanon, and of a hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, of birds, of reptiles, of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now, now what you have is, is a breaking down of the curse. Because remember that the tree of knowledge, it is knowledge of good and evil, good and bad. But what they lacked was the wisdom to discern between good and evil. Now what it is you have now in Solomon is leadership that is godly and wise. The taking back of the cursed earth. And the nation is just spreading its borders to cover the earth. Solomon then was a gifted communicator, a gifted administrator, a gifted visionary. But what set him apart as a leader was his wisdom. There are many people who have leadership skills but if they lack the wisdom, they are dangerous. And be wary, dear Christian, to buy into someone with the skills without the character. Nothing good comes out of that. And David here is exhorting his son. You've got hard decisions to make. This guy needs to go. This guy needs to be honored. That guy needs to go. But it's going to take a lot of wisdom to know how to navigate these waters. When to make these decisions and how. Remember again the context. This is a father's last words to his son. Be strong. Be faithful. Be a leader. And not just any leader, but a wise one. I was reflecting on these passage, this passage over this week. And I was sort of putting myself in, in, in David's shoes. That if I as a father had to speak to my son one last time, what, what sort of things would would come to my mind. I actually think that David gives us a really good list here. Gospel strength, 
Biblical obedience and wise leadership are sorely lacking our day and age. And if you want to change the world, grow in these three areas. If the church wants to be impactful in our culture, we need to grow in these three areas. I'm not sure I can think of a better list of three that we need more than this. One key thing we need to see, especially since remember that this is a text that fits within the broader narrative of a book of the Bible. So we read the text as it is, but also where it fits in the story arc of the Bible. And what you get in First and Second Kings is a story of kings. I didn't know if you could figure that out or not. And those kings, they live, they rise to power, they reign, and they die. And particularly in the, in, in the Judah side, what you get is the son of David will come, he will rise to power, he will reign, and he will die. And another son of David, he will rise to power, he will reign, and then he will die. And another son of David, and another son of David, and another son of David, until the throne is taken away from the son of David. No accident then that when we come into the New Testament, the first thing we discover about this man named Jesus, is that he was the son of Abraham, he was the son of David. And in Christ, the unconditional promises of God are fulfilled. And he fulfilled them by retelling the story of the sons of David. As a son of David, he came. He rose to power, bringing with him a kingdom. He reigns. But this David, too, he died. But what sets him apart isn't that he died, but that he, unlike all of his predecessors, overcame death. He's the true and better David. As we have said a thousand times in our study of this biography, Christ rules and reigns. What is it that Peter said on the day, day of the Pentecost in the sermon? David, we know exactly where he's buried. You can go right over there in Jerusalem. You can find David. His great son, his tomb is right over there. Joseph of Arimathea's. You can't find him there anymore. He is risen he is risen indeed. I shared with you the story of John Knox this morning. My favorite of the reformers. Yes, it is because I'm Scottish, Scott Irish, but um, he's an interesting guy. Um, and uh, at times I do think I say, I say he talked so much his tongue got sunburned, but nevertheless, he was a fiery preacher, a man of great strength. Uh, and I share with you today that um, Mary Queens of Scots made the comment that she feared the prayers of Knox more than a thousand armies. Can I read to you how he died? I didn't want to type this up because I was too lazy, so I just grabbed the book. This is a short book uh, by Steve Lawson. This is a Christian Focus publishing. So, story time. I know it's past time to go, but it's John's fault. Despite Knox's declined strength during this period, Knox preached virtually every day in St. Andrews. Every day. That's the life right there. We'll move on. This was especially notable given how weak he had become with age. He became so frail that he could barely walk to church. And wherever he went, he limped, leaning on a staff in his right hand with his helper supporting his left arm. These two steadying forces stabilized him and helped him move along the streets of the town. Once Knox, Knox arrived at the church each day, he had to be assisted into the pulpit. Though fragile in body, Knox's strength was renewed by God in the moment of preaching 
He would begin deliberately, but by the end of the sermon, he was so energized, he would preach with fervor of his earlier days. Observers noted that as Knox expounded the scripture, it seemed he was about to smash the pulpit and the pieces and be catapulted out of it. This endurance was all the more remarkable given the vast loss of health and strength he had recently experienced. It goes on. I'm skipping a lot, I promise. It goes on. Upon his arrival, 1572, upon his arrival in Edinburgh, Knox preached in St. Giles on 31st of August for the first time in 16 months. His health kept him out. However, his voice was so weak that he could not be heard in the large sanctuary. From that point forward, the declining preacher spoke where he could be heard in a smaller room attached to St. Giles, known as the outer toll booth. Despite the lessening of his voice projection, the passion within his soul remained intense. During the last weeks of his life, Knox preached on the crucifixion of Christ in Matthew 27. This was, quote, a theme, says Thomas McRae, his first biographer, quote, with which he had often expressed a wish to close out his ministry. The reason he preached from Matthew 27 so often is because he assumed it would be his last sermon, and he wanted his last sermon to be focused on the death of Jesus. That, that's good stuff right there. To the very end, Lawson notes, Knox was preaching Christ and him crucified, exalting his Savior and extolling his Lord. Let me share with you how he actually died. On November 24th, this is 1572, as Knox lay in bed, a friend asked if he had any pain. Knox replied, quote, It is no painful pain, but such a pain as shall soon, I trust, put an end to the battle. Knox then asked his wife to read to him the scriptures and sermons. At midday, she repeatedly read to him 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. Is not that a comfortable chapter, he said, clinging to the promise of the gospel and the hope of the resurrection? He then pointed with three fingers upwards to heaven and said, I commend my soul and spirit and body unto thy hands, O Lord. After another five hours, Knox instructed his wife, Go read where I have cast my first anchor. A reference to John 17. This is why we think that John Knox was saved after he read the words of Christ in John chapter 17. So what gave him new birth gave him hope upon his deathbed. That's the anchor of my soul, the words of Jesus by which I was saved. Finally, she once more read to him a part of Calvin's sermons on the Ephesians. Knox lay quiet on his deathbed for some hours. Then at 11 o'clock that night, Knox sighed, now it is time. His secretary encouraged him to think on the Lord Jesus Christ and his promises. Knox lay speechless. There was no verbal response. His loyal secretary asked for a sign that he could still hear. He raised up one of his hands to heaven, and then he died peaceably. In the words of his secretary, quote, In this manner departed this man of God, the light of Scotland, the comfort of the church within the same, the mirror of godliness, and the pattern of an example of all true ministers. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you would